This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the great treats of being able to work in radio, there's a lot of fun things about it, but one of the great treats for me is to be able to actually work with and get to know people that you grew up watching, admiring, reading, and that is certainly the case with my next guest. He is not only one of the best film critics in America, he's not only the author of at least seven books, he's writing books literally at a rate faster than I can read them. He is someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of baseball, and he is the middle generation of three generations of media titans. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome the world's greatest film critic and an author whose forthcoming book is Caviar and War, Cafe Society During World War II, the one and only Jeffrey Lyons. Jeffrey, it's great to talk with you again, my friend. Good to see you, talk to you again. We spent so many years together on other stations. And uh, it was a weekly treat to talk to you guys. Jeffrey, you are still reviewing movies. You've reviewed, people believe, more films than any critic in history. Making a living as a film critic today, in the year 2023, is that the modern-day equivalent of uh, being a uh, telegraph operator or uh, an elevator (laughs) operator? No, because uh, it's just changed a little bit. Uh, I see movies mostly online now, and I see them on uh, Netflix and places like that. And the industry has evolved. Uh, you know, when you look down the, the, the nominees for Best Picture this year, there aren't many that I'll be thinking about 10 years from now. And uh, they're for other audiences, and they, they give Oscars to, uh, nominations to mega hits that don't need it. And then they sometimes a smaller film can, can benefit a lot more. The, in, the industry has changed, and I've changed with it. And that's why I keep doing other things as well. Well, I want to ask you about the uh, Oscars in just uh-huh. a second. But I, I am intrigued by the uh, title of your next book, Caviar and War. I've read your three most recent books and I think several others. Uh, you've had some great stories about your father's columns, and you tell some of the stories behind the stories. Uh, we last spoke on the radio about the... The uh, Hemingway book, which I'm going to ask you about. Right. You've written a number of books about baseball. What's Caviar and War about? Well, Carl Sandburg, America's greatest Lincoln scholar, once said to my father, I wish you'd been writing your column during Lincoln's time because it would have made my job to write about Lincoln a lot easier because we would have known what was going on in New York. So, of course, there was no Lion's Den column back in the Civil War. I decided to look up my father's columns during World War II. Hmm. So I have every one of his columns in 40 scrapbooks, and I started on the column of September 1st, 1939, not because it was the day Lily Tomlin was born, which I love to remember. (laughs) It's true. I've told her about that. But because that's the day, the official start of World War II. Of course, there had been uh, conflicts before with China invading Manchuria, 
But I signed it September 1st, 1939, and ever since, I'm up to 1942 now. I've gone through every one of the columns. I think there are 312 columns a year, each one a 1,000 words. And I'm picking out the stories of the well-known people, the bold-faced people. And as we're getting closer to the war years, as the isolationist din begins to subside, I'm getting more stories from my father about World War II, about how, uh, for example, today I found a story I hadn't seen before. Uh, Vivian Lee had finished shooting Gone with the Wind, and she went back to London, and Ch- uh, Churchill got to, got to look at the movie. He somehow found four hours during the Battle of Britain to watch it, and he came out saying, I'm, I'm numb. Now I have to go back to my war. Uh, little stories like that that really humanize mm. what people went through, and it's, it's a record that I think should be, should be noted. So, and it's a joy. I hear my father's voice. Uh, uh, talking to me about these. And my brothers and I would make nightclub rounds with him when I was a child and growing up when I was a young man, mostly. And you could go one evening, and in one in one evening, I, I've had tea with the, the Duke of, and Duchess of Windsor, Mickey Mantle, and Gene Kelly on one night. You know, that, that kind of life he lived. And he went home and wrote about them. He I... never wrote with his eye to the keyhole. He didn't write who was going around with who, but he wrote news, newsworthy people, never used gossip, never used the word celebrity. It, you know, I used to think, knowing you as an adult, that you had lived the kind of lifetime that uh, people are w- envious of as soon as they hear about them. But after hearing some of the stories of the things that you witnessed as a child, I now realize you've lived enough adventure. In lifetimes, not just one. For people that don't know about your father, who may be a little younger, mm-hmm. Leonard Lyons, probably the most influential columnist in that era, in uh, not just in New York, but around the country. And you, you said two things that I want to uh, get you to reemphasize. One, you emphasize kind of the difference between him and someone like Walter Winchell, who was unabashedly a gossip columnist. And the other thing that you said is he was would do, I thought you just said, 312 columns a year. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could read 312 columns know, a year. And don't forget, no word processor, no internet. And uh, he would come home at night at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he'd spend an hour and a half on the phone dictating word for word some of the later stories that he had gotten that night, rather than saving them for the next day's column, to get them in the next morning's column to beat his uh, competitors. Winchell was the most famous columnist, but Winchell named my father's column. They were friendly enemies for years. Winchell threatened to kill my father once. He never voted in his life. Uh, a thousand people came to my father's funeral, and John Lindsay gave the eulogy, and he said in a business of sharks, he was a prince. One person came to Winchell's funeral, his daughter. Oh, yeah, two people, the rabbi. So <laughs> you, you're, you're judged in part by the way... Uh, you lived. Uh, how many people show up at your funeral? It, so those are, that's the difference between the two of them. It, if people haven't read your father's columns in a while or they want to know some of the stories behind the stories, a book I recommend, it's uh, over 10 years old now, but I still recommend it. It's just wonderful. It's called Stories My Father Told Me. Well, thank you. No, notes from the Lion's Den. But how would you describe what your father would write about in 312 And it's got a sequel, too, by the way, called What, what a Time, what a time it, was. it Was. I have that yeah. one, too, on Each my show. Each chapter is anecdotes of the people he would he wrote about um well, he would go to, to to lunch places and then he would go and come home and write the first draft of the column and then he would hand it in and come home and pitch an inning or two to my brothers and me we lived across the street from central park then he'd go out again and go to 13 more places and he'd come home with anecdotes uh for example uh you mentioned hemingway hemingway's best friend besides my father 
was Gary Cooper. And they were out in Montana somewhere, and they stopped at a gas station, or as they used to call them, filling stations. And uh, Gary Cooper would write a check, knowing they would never cash the check. They'd frame it. And Hemingway tried it, just to say, and they, 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 didn't, they didn't allow that. They made him pay. Uh, <laughs> stories like that. I'm, I'm not telling it as well as, as, uh, as it was written. But stories that humanize people. Uh, when Mary Hemingway found the body, she called my dad before she told the world, uh, to have him tell the world that Hemingway had passed. So it was largely, the columns were largely a collection of anecdotes that, yes. uh, that the world's greatest sources would give to him exclusively. Yeah, speaking of sources, the day after Pearl Harbor, I think he had six stories from his inside source from the White House. The person who was mentioned most in my dad's column was FDR. The second most was, was Eleanor Roosevelt, and the third most was Hemingway. And Orson Welles was his best friend. I mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt. She did not like uh, Secret Service protection, and she would often come to New York by herself. Can you imagine? And she was sitting on the IRT, as they used to call some of the subways. I don't know if you're old enough to know that they used to be called the IRT, the IMD, and then the BMT. And she, she'd be sitting on the IRT, and a sailor got on with his girlfriend and sat down, and they started staring at her. And they said, the sailor said, Miss, uh, excuse me, did anybody tell you you look exactly like Mrs. Roosevelt? And she went into a 10-minute explanation of the New Deal, Lend-Lease, the Dust Bowl, of the president's budget. And as the sailor was getting out with his girlfriend at 14th Street, he looked over his shoulder and says, that's a great imitation. Keep it up. <laughs> those, those, those kind of stories are – it's a true story. They're all they're, – uh, they're not always all funny, but, for example, LBJ was in the Navy. He resigned his seat in Congress after Pearl Harbor and joined the Navy. And he was at Pearl Harbor waiting – not at the attack a year or two later – and he was headed to Pearl Harbor, I should say, for some R&R, for rest and recuperation. He was an amateur movie maker. And he left. He, the, the plane is on the tarmac. The propellers are turning. And he told the pilot, wait a minute, I forgot my camera. And he raced back to his barracks. By the time he got back to the, air, to, the, um, to, the, to the takeoff spot, the plane had flown off by a superior officer who had demanded to leave. And the plane was shot down. Oh, my So goodness. there are all sorts of stories like that in it, uh, from, from astonishing to not the mundane, but the humanized. For example, W.C. Fields and, and uh, John Barrymore uh, no, noted elbow benders, as they used to call people. The day after Pearl Harbor, they showed up to enlist, and the sergeant behind the desk threw them out. He thought they had been sent there by the Japanese because they were both completely drunk. With, <laughs> and and they, he said, my father wrote that there was a, a, a portrait of Queen Victoria in W.C. Fields' bedroom, but on closer inspection, it was a picture of W.C. Fields dressed as Queen Victoria. Uh, <laughs> stories like that. And, they, I, and I love finding them, because it's part of history. Absolutely. A lot of these people were history-making. No doubt and, about it. No doubt about it. Hey, I, I can ask you, we could do a whole hour just uh, on the legacy of uh, Leonard Lyons and what he's meant right. to uh, New York media. Last question I'll ask about him is something that I think a lot of people may not realize, even people that were fans of his back in the day, which is is that he was, before he was a columnist, before he was an influential member of the media, he was a lawyer. He was. He was in the first class of St. John's, finished second in his class at St. John's Law School. And years later, 1952, I can remember I was a little boy and I have glimpses of it, he was admitted to practice in front of the Supreme Court. So he brought his whole family, my three brothers and my mother and me, and he knew, uh, I think, five or six of the justices. Hey, Lenny, how you doing <laughs> from the bench? And meanwhile, lawyers for cases ready to be pleaded or pled 
looked over, who is this guy? He's got a majority of the court on a first-name basis. We've got to get him on our side. And my, one of my brother's godfathers was William O. Douglas. And Douglas's last wife was Kathy, who was about a third his age. And my brother with Douglas, who became a long, a long time uh, a, a, a public defender, he said, boy, I hope uh, Mrs. Douglas has an older sister for me. <laughs> uh, hey, um, you, obviously, obviously the whole world has uh, Super Bowl fever. So by all means, I'm going to ask you about baseball. Uh, you are the biggest Red Sox fan in yeah. New York that I'm aware of. While everybody else uh, of uh, your generation was chanting DiMaggio, 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 meaning Joe, you were meaning it for uh, Dom DiMaggio. Well, yes and no. For I'll tell you first, the song goes... In Boston, he's better than his brother Joe. He's Dominic DiMaggio. Well, he wasn't better, but he was a great player, too. He belongs on the Hall of Fame. But Joe DiMaggio was a family friend. And one night, my parents had given a party for Ethel Barrymore. And uh, the night before, my father sat with her at Sardi's, and she overheard somebody at the next table say, oh, there's a great play at the Barrymore Theater. She said, excuse me, Lenny, it's the Ethel Barrymore Theater. <laughs> and so my, he, they gave a party for, for Ethel Barrymore, and I woke up. And I heard the, my parents' friends making noise in the living room. When I walked in, I surveyed the place. And the only person I recognized was Joe DiMaggio, who was cowering in fear in the corner. He was so shy. And I looked around, and I, everybody was a hush. I was in my pajamas. It was 2 in the morning. And I said, Mr. DiMaggio, you're the best guest here. And everybody laughed and applauded. I went to bed. And 35 years later, at an old-timer's day, he called me over, and he said, would you still say that? And I said, of course I would, Joe. And I learned later that in the room, the people I so cavalierly dismissed, among others, Ernest Hemingway, Adlai Stevenson, Comden and Green, uh, I think Fred Astaire and Edward G. Robinson, none of whom could hit a curveball the way Joe could. <laughs> so all the more reason uh, I am curious as to how you, a, a lifelong New Yorker, a guy that is an integral part of the fabric of what has made this city from a media perspective and from every other perspective, how does Jeffrey Lyons end up as a Boston Red Sox fan? Frank, why does love have to be explained? <laughs> Why did I marry? Why did this Jewish boy marry a gorgeous Catholic girl from Chicago, who my mother called by the wrong name for a year, hoping to go away? Why? Why? Why do you have to explain love? I have no idea why, but they have been the bane up until 2004. They were the bane of my existence. I would take the D train up to up to Yankee Stadium, and the crowd, those who recognized me from TV, would start yelling, "Lions suck! Lions suck!" And after 2004, I haven't seen one of those caps that said 1918 on them. <laughs> Not one. They've won four times I've... in my lifetime. And, and it's, it's, it's just been great. I've, I've broadcast games in Spanish because I speak Spanish. And uh, it's, 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 it's just a wonderful thing to have. And, and, well, good yeah. for you. I, I was just always curious about how the, uh, the, I, the I origin no of how that came to be. We're talking with Jeffrey Lyons. If you're interested in the Boston Red Sox, you want to check out his book. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are, are sold. It's called The Boston Red Sox All-Time All-Stars. And it's, even if you're not a Red Sox fan, it's a great look at baseball history and Red well, Sox you, history. You know, Big Poppy wore number 34. I found a player who also wore number 34 for the Red Sox in 1952 named Al Poppy. You're kidding. Well, that's I'm sure he, or actually Al Pape, but it's close enough. I don't think his wife knows that he, that he played for the <laughs> Red Sox. That's how obscure he was. And I have a whole trivia section. And I went out, this is before Xander Bogarts deserted the ship. But I went around uh, the, the diamond and picked the greatest players at each position. 
And then I have a chapter called, I bet you didn't know, he played for the Red Sox. Some of the players like Andre Dawson, on their way to Cooperstown, they play for the Red Sox for a week or so or a month. Every time I see John Smoltz, who, as you know, is one of the great uh, Atlanta Braves pitchers, he played, I think, 17, 18 seasons with with the Braves and about two weeks for the Red Sox. I said, how could you go into the Hall of Fame with a Atlanta Braves hat. When you played for the Red Sox, you could have gone in with a Red Sox hat. He played for about two weeks when he was done as a player, so he loved that. Humor. Yeah, trust me, as a Met fan, uh, seeing all the Mets uh, not named Seaver and Piazza that ended up in the Hall of Fame, I uh, I share your frustration. Right. Not not 100 years worth of frustration, but at least 60 years. Right. All right, uh, let's talk movies. Oscar nominations are out. This is when I sort of begin my sojourn to try to see as many of the Oscar-nominated films in as many categories as possible, but now Having a 14-month-old, it is pretty difficult to see all these movies. Before we get to uh, what you liked, what you weren't crazy about, were there any films that came out last year that you think were great, that were just snubbed, and that were worthy of something like an Oscar nomination and didn't get one? Yeah, the one with Olivia Colman. Uh, about life, I think the principle of life. I forget the name of it. She, it's based on the director's life growing up where his mother worked in a movie theater in England, in a small city in England. That was beautiful, and it was, it was, it was just snow. Oh, was that The Lost Daughter? Or mo- no, no, uh, yeah, no. so I, I hadn't seen that uh, either. Maybe it was Joyride. Joyride. These are just so mediocre. I mean, was the film Joyride? Was that it? No. 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 Okay. The Fablemans, is, is it okay? I'm a big, I think Steven Spielberg's the greatest filmmaker of our time. I'm glad to be alive when Steven Spielberg is making movies. That said... I thought the Fablemans was okay. Uh, it, it just it was too a little schmaltzy, and, and it was too long. It was more than two hours. Hitch- I generally don't like it when movies are over two hours. Hitchcock said, "Tell it in two hours." Anything over two hours, I generally like to see chariots and you know and sandals and swords, not the. Uh, uh, a family nostalgia thing for more than two hours. All right, Empire uh, of Light was that film that Olivia Colman. Yeah. Re- and everything, it. everywhere, at, at uh, all at once, I found impossible to, to follow. Really, I'm the only one of anybody I know who feels that way. I thought she does. Uh, uh, she deserves. Uh, uh, I think uh, Jamie Lee Curtis w- will get the Oscar if there's any prediction because she's overdue. There are a lot of people who are overdue. Bill Nye is long overdue, uh, uh, and he was wonderful in, in living. He was just wonderful. You know, he, he was that willowy, washed-up rock star of, of love, actually. Right. And they do that sometimes. They, they give that for actors like right. Rod Steiger should have won for The Pawnbroker, and he won the next year for In the Heat of the Night. I think most is, people would also agree that John Wayne's best picture was not True Grit, but that's the one that he right. got the Oscar for. So um, in terms of films that you really enjoyed, it sounds like it's a, it's a relatively short list from the nominees this year. Yeah, I like I liked the performance of, uh, of uh, uh, In the Whale. Uh, you know, it's a best Brendan actor. Brendan Fraser, uh, yeah. Uh, Brendan Fraser, yeah, you know, he's, he's, been around, he's been absent from stardom for a long time. And he he was very poignant. It wasn't just good makeup. It was a it was a it was a poignant, very poignant performance. But for goodness sake, uh, there, there, there's this. I, I don't know if they're going to investigate it. But one of the movies, Two Leslie, I think it's called, made twenty five thousand dollars total, and they even made fun of it on uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, and the actress Andrea Risenbro, 
uh, got nominated too. Uh, maybe she's deserving, I guess, but uh, a lot of actors got behind it. And in a way, that's good. You don't have to always have a huge, expensive PR budget behind your nominating process. But, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Mercedes McCambridge who won an Oscar, and she said, it's crazy, the whole thing's crazy. Hmm. Uh, it is. So in terms of absolute must-sees, I remember the year The Artist was nominated, you said to everybody, look, I don't see a lot of films more than once. This is one that you absolutely have to see. Is there anything nominated this year that you feel people abs- absolutely positively must no, see? absolutely not. Really? But, wow. Uh, okay. No, but uh, if you see uh, the, uh, the Avatar, of course, if you haven't seen the first one, I don't know. I, there's going to be another one, I guess. Uh, uh, I, I just wish they would make a little movie that, that doesn't have $150 million special effects. Mm. Uh, the the uh, Top Gun movie is very well done for what it is. You have to give it credit. It's spectacular videos. It's just astonishing videos. So if you, if you, if you go without expecting anything that will change your life, among these, I guess, uh, Elvis, too. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of much of Elvis's stuff, but I think now we've said everything about Elvis's life. Uh, but there isn't any that's going to be remembered 10 years from now. Tar is a very talky movie, very intellectual film, and it's an art house movie. I guess I'm glad it was nominated. And, and Kate Blanchett is a great, great actress, and she's uh, plays this conductor who is a very short temper and intellectualizes the, the 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 music, and I'm glad it's there, but I don't think it's going to make much money, uh, and I don't think the ratings are going to be high either. But if anybody can make it interesting, it'll it'll be Jimmy Kimmel. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, yeah, he certainly uh, seems to have made this his uh, his specialty. Uh, talking with Jeffrey Lyons, no one has re- reviewed more films that we're aware of. As far as you're concerned, Jeffrey, you mentioned how you view movies differently than you did 10, 15, 20 years well, ago. Change. Uh, well, I haven't been to a movie theater in over a year, and I used to really enjoy going to the movies what do you see uh, because of the change in my habits your habits everyone's habits as the future of movie theaters can movie theaters still survive five I, ten years i think from it's now? questionable i mean it because it's so expensive to park the car and pay for the gas and get a babysitter and go out and have dinner and it'll cost you more than two hundred dollars maybe for, for a couple mm-hmm. and i think that the streaming services are fine look i believe if a movie is good it does, it, people now have 80-inch TVs in their homes, mm. flat-screen TVs, and I don't think that's – the business has to evolve. It really does, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. There is nothing like going to see a movie like Jaws or, or a terrifying movie like The Exorcist in a theater where you can't get away. Uh, but that, that maybe has to be sacrificed. I hope they don't make movies because of the change in way people are seeing them. But I, I, I'm not worried about the future. Sooner or later, it's also a great time, Frank, to be an actor because there are so many different platforms for your product to be seen. Apple TV, Netflix, Hulu, all those platforms that didn't exist 10 years ago. And there are going to be more of them, too. I think it's great. But I, I just haven't, since, since you and I and most people can't control what's going to happen, I'll sit back and enjoy it. One of the things that AMC is now trying is sort of a dynamic pricing that allows people to pay different prices depending on where their seat is in the theater. Is that something you could see working out, or is that the new smell vision yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, it's it's almost too complicated because if you don't have access to the best seats and they're a lot cheaper, it's going to be a lousy seat. Right. 
And you're not going to want to do that. If you can wait two weeks or three weeks or a month and see it in the comfort of your home on the big 80 or 50, even a a 50 in screen, then wait. It's not urgent. There really is going to be something like that every time that they try some gimmick, comfortable chairs, you know, maybe valet service. It's not going to help. One of the things that I've always really admired about you is your skills as an interviewer, whether we're talking television, radio, or even now the printed page. You are able to get people to share stories that they wouldn't share with any other interviewer. And obviously, uh, your discussions with Kirk Douglas over the years were were legendary. And I I know uh, the kind of esteem that you held uh, Kirk Douglas in. Well, Mm -hmm. this Friday, I'm getting my Kirk Douglas moment uh, by interviewing uh, William Shatner in uh, in Red Bank. In your view, having done this for a long time, what are the tricks to being a good interviewer? Okay, I'd like to go into an interview, depending on how much time I have, and have the actor say, boy, he did his homework. He prepared, so I'm going to tell him this and that. I had, the, uh, once I had three days to prepare for an interview with Betty Davis, a one-hour interview with Betty Davis. Wow. This was 20 years before the Internet. The good thing about the Internet is that everybody has access to it. The bad thing about the Internet is that everybody has access to it. I was lucky to have a friend who collected movie clippings from every magazine and newspaper he could get his hands on. And his file on movie actors, he had uh, over a million clippings. And I would come in for do three weeks of research. But this Betty Davis interview, I was told on Friday, you can talk to her on Monday. And I had a wedding in Massachusetts that weekend. So I told the bride and groom what was going on. And then after the ceremony, I sat in the basement with the flower girl helping me with the research and came up with a lot of questions that she absolutely loved. If you come prepared better than anybody. The best example, and I, this is only luck, I had never met Antonio Banderas before. And in those days, I was still doing the junkets where you sit for five minutes and the guy from Detroit comes after that. And they, you know, and they put the New York people last so that the guy from Oklahoma City can make his flight home. Okay, you get a tired actor at the end of the day. I was probably the 45th interview that Banderas had done that day. And the lights are in his eyes and he's tired and he wants. And that's understandable. I knew that he'd been a, a, a musician in on the streets of Malaga. And he worked in the bullring in Malaga, Spain, where I spent lots of my life in Mm. Spain. And I walked in humming the music that they play only in Malaga's bullring and doing the PA announcement advertising the local beer. Cereza Victoria, Malagueña y Esquisita, made in Malaga and it's exquisite. And his eyes lit up and I had a friend for life. And the same thing happened with Penelope Cruz. Uh, She did not speak much English when I first met her. She had memorized her lines for a movie called All the Pretty Horses. Frankie had to subpoena people to see that movie. <laughs> Nobody went to see that movie, right? And I walked in, and she was petrified. And this is at NBC. And I started speaking to her in her dialect of Spanish, which is my second language for all the summers I spent following the Bulls in Spain. And she put her arms around me, and she opened up, and we did an interview for Telemundo. And I, in other words, it's all part of being prepared in a unique way if you can be. If you can't, Get everything you can read about that actor from any source and walk in with questions that they've never heard before. Not what was it like working with or what are you going to do next? None of those questions. They've been asked that for four hours before. 
find out their first role. I, I interviewed Jason Robards once for the first time, and I knew that his first role was the rear end of a horse in Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> now, that's unusual. I guarantee you no other actor began that way. And he loved that I had found that out about him. And it opened him up, and he told me how he wanted to play for the New York Giants and all that. And I had a great interview with him. One of the great interviews I've ever had was Mark Hamill. Now, what am I going to ask him besides Star Wars? He did a Room 222 and all that, but he was great. And other actors, who shall remain nameless perhaps, uh, are impossible to interview. They're mountains to climb. Uh, so it depends on the actor as well. It, uh, Robert De Niro doesn't like the process. If yeah, you, sit you can next tell. To him on a flight, he wouldn't talk. To, he wouldn't talk much. If you give him a script, he's Titanic as an actor. So it all depends also on the actor. Tommy Lee Jones can be tough, uh, but if you break through that and ask him a question to let him know that you did your homework, then you're home free. I know that uh, that you've uh, co-authored a couple of books about baseball, more than uh-huh. a couple, with uh, with your brother, and that your brother is uh, is a criminal defense attorney, I believe. Just retired. Y- you also have a law degree, which is something that I think many people may not know about you, but you never practiced law. How come? No, I didn't want to. I, I, I'm not ashamed to say I did it, uh, and it, it was a draft deferment. And I'm, uh, it was a war that was illegal. I didn't demonstrate or anything like that. But I do have the memory of a guy a year ahead of me at Syracuse Law School named Joe Biden. <laughs> I didn't know him. I wish I had. I'm on the next panel. I went to law school in Syracuse where they have two seasons, winter and July 4th. And it was, <laughs> it's true. We went 31 days below zero. And I'm somebody who's been in New York, and I, I, I'm a palm tree guy. I don't get the attraction of skiing. to go. I know. We'll go to an even colder place. We'll pay a lot of money to go all the way up just to come all the way down. I don't want that for a vacation. I want to see palm trees. Let, but, uh, please, go ahead. Continue. No, it's just it was great training, though. Like, it was great training and very, very taught me how to synthesize my thoughts quickly. And, and, and uh, I can write a review quickly. That doesn't mean I'm flippant. That doesn't mean I could write it. Better if I had two hours, but I know how to write for television and radio with uh, all deliberate speed. But the night before I became a critic, Frank, had dinner with Ruth Gordon, who won the Oscar at the age of 69 and held it up and said, you can't imagine how encouraging a thing like this is. And she said, Sonny, you're starting your career tomorrow. Think twice before you knock somebody mm. else's work. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, that's great advice. Last question, Jeffrey. I know you're a fan of a lot of uh, great Woody Allen films over the years. There was a very interesting uh, profile that PBS did on him. One of the very rare things that Woody would allow himself to sort of open up a bit. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer uh, asked him what I thought was such an interesting question because, like you, He's got a lot of fondness for both sports and motion pictures. And the interviewer asked him, at this point in your life going forward, if you had to choose between never seeing another sporting event again or never seeing another motion picture again, what would you say? I'm going to ask you the same question. I have two children. I don't know which one I love the best. I love them both. I don't know. I can't. If you said to me you can see any picture, you, well, uh, any picture you want, you, you never see a movie again or you never see a Red Sox game, I really don't know. I wish I could answer that, but they, they have both places in my heart. Because if I say, oh, Red Sox, then that means I'm not giving attention to baseball. But I'm, I'm doing both now. I'm writing baseball trivia questions, and I'm also, uh, I'm also for the radio, and I'm also seeing, still seeing movies. There's no way to decide that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, my, somebody asked my father, which of your four children do you love the best? He said, I love them all alike. I want them to be productive citizens. That's what my that's what I hope for my children. And my son Ben, by the way, is on a new sports show on Amazon Prime. It's called Bonjour Sports. 
every morning, Monday through Friday, 8 to 10, and then repeated at 10 to 12. Two hours to have talked. One of his co-hosts is Amani Toomer, the former Giants Super Bowl hero. And so the sports is a big part of my life. And then my son has done film criticism as well. No, I know that. Uh, he's, he's absolutely terrific. It's a shame that, you. Uh, that you guys are always uh, so lazy and not getting any work done. I know. <laughs> Jeffrey, it is always such a treat to talk with you. I can't wait to do this again. I want to encourage people to be on the lookout for your forthcoming book, Caviar and War. And uh, if they peruse the terrific Leonard Lyons uh, selections at uh, Amazon, they could search either Leonard Lyons or Jeffrey Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. They won't be disappointed. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. And one of these days I'm going to get all ten questions right and win that contest. <laughs> We'll, we'll be ready for you, Jeffrey. We'll be All ready. Right. Uh, this, the great Jeffrey Lyons. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.